0: And if we please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16 today, and if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 958. And today in our um, study of 1 Corinthians, we're beginning a new section, as you've seen, there's various different sections that he's in, where he's looking at, at various different topics. And this section that we're looking at between chapters 11 and 14, this deals with the broad topic of worship, proper worship. And what we're seeing in the the Corinthian church, and what sadly we see in our own church, is there's needless divisions seep into the church with respect to worship. What should be a time of joy and praise in the Lord, sadly, has often become a a time of, of division. And this broad section addresses topics such as the Lord's Supper, proper use of spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, orderly worship, and we'll get through this in our study, And we see that these these topics, there's much debate, there's much disagreement in today's church. And we need to balance a reverence that we have, a God-honoring, God-commanded worship with spiritual unity, showing grace to one another, granting Christian liberty, building others up, not seeking our own good, but the good of our neighbors. And this is not always the easiest thing to do, given the strong views that we have concerning the proper worship. And today we start with one of the most difficult passages, really, in all the New Testament. A passage that has various different understandings, even even in our own tradition, even in our own denomination. I've read multiple commentaries in studying for this and listened to sermons, and they were all over the place, different different things. So this is a very difficult passage, and I thank you. Many of you have been praying for me as I've been going through this this passage, so uh, Hopefully, the Holy Spirit I pray with for me now as we go through this, that the Holy Spirit will reveal His, his message to us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses two through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovers dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, I do ask for your spirit to be with me. Father, help me to rightly divide this word. Help us to understand this word. This is a a complicated passage. This is an ambiguous passage. And Father, we pray that you will use this time to grow us. Father, that we will understand not just this passage more, but we will understand you. And, Father, we pray that we will love you more, we will have an encounter with Christ, and you will be glorified by this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I say this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, I don't mean it's necessarily a hard passage to obey. What I mean is that it's, it's difficult to understand. You see, this passage is difficult really because it's ambiguous, It's a difficult passage because it's difficult for us to understand. That's why we see a great divergence in interpretations and commentaries. For example, is this passage about men and women in general, or is it about husbands and wives? You see the same Greek word, woman and wife, or husband and man, depending on the context. It's the same word. So we have to understand, what is he talking about? Some people see it as universal to men and women. Others see it as specific to married couples, and this is the approach that the ESV takes. Uh, the translators actually translate husband and wife. That is not in the original Greek. It's men and women. So that is an a interpretation that the translators take. Another question is, what is actually meant by head covering? Is it a hat? Is it a veil? Does it refer to hair? The, the, the passage is, is largely silent about this. And even the word itself, it's used in different, uh, 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 I said, the word head itself is used in in different sense in this passage. It refers to the physical head, but it also refers to Christ. It also refers to the man. It refers to God. And even metaphorically, what does head mean? It can have many different meanings. And none of these meanings are clear in the text itself. It's also difficult to determine from the text what is the universal timeless principle and what is only specific to the Corinthians cultural context. Is the entire passage only applicable to the Corinthians or and has, says nothing to us? Or is the entire thing, oh, all applicable to us? Or is it part, part general, part cultural? And again, it's difficult for us to understand from the, from the text itself. And hence, variation interpretation among different commentators. Also, how much background knowledge do we need to know about Corinth, about the Roman situation? Again, if you listen to sermons on this or read commentaries, they bring a lot of background information in there. How much do we need to know about this? You know, about Corinthian prostitutes and what what the culture of short hair, long hair, wearing head coverings and not. In addition to all these things, we have this bizarre statement in verse 10 about that a woman should have a, a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? And there's all kinds of bizarre Bizarre speculation with respect to that verse. So these are some of the questions that lead to the ambiguity of this passage. Questions that hopefully we will see and hopefully we'll be able to answer as we go through this text. And what we're going to do is we're going to simply walk through this text. And this is really how I figured out what this text meant. I went through it verse by verse, asking it questions and coming up with questions and going through so hopefully by the time we get to the end, we will understand what this verse is saying and also understand how we can apply it in our modern context. So let's start off right at the beginning. Paul starts off this section commending the Corinthians and he commends them because they maintain the traditions that Paul delivered to them. And I think this verse is important. This verse is, it's easy for us to pass by this, this verse. And it's easiest, if if we skip through it, wanting to get to the more controversial issues. I think we're going to miss something important here. Because what Paul is saying is that the instructions that are found in this passage, these are not Paul's own ideas. They're not his own instructions that that he has to, to address a particular concern in this particular church in Corinth. But rather these instructions represent a traditional teaching practiced by all the churches of that day. And Paul, again, reiterates this point at the end of the passage in verse 16, where he basically says that this is what all the churches are doing. So why is this important? Because right off the bat, what Paul is telling us, that these instructions are broader than the local context. They are broader than just the Corinthian church. They are a tradition that all the church, churches did at this time. Now, tradition is different from Scripture. Tradition is different than thus saith the Lord. And just because a practice was universal at a particular time in the church does not mean that it's universal tradition for all times in the church. But nonetheless, this statement should get our attention. It should warn us not to too, too quickly dismiss this teaching, only applying to the original context and having nothing to say to us as well. Our default, rather, should be to expect this passage to apply to us unless we can see a clear indication in it or in part of it that it's culturally specific. So let's go to verse 3. This is where we start to hit some difficulties. Verse 3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife, and it's actually the word is woman, so the head of woman is the man or her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And the ambiguity with this verse has to deal with first the scope of this verse. Does it apply solely to a marriage relationship? Does it apply to husband and wife? Or does it apply to men and women in general? And the second, this is again another debated uh, part of this verse, is how is head the word head used? What is the metaphorical sense of head? Is it source? Some people will think it's the source. Some people will think it's authority. Some people will think it's representation. So there's different meanings here. But as I'm going through this, I don't really think this verse is actually difficult to understand. I think what's difficult is we don't really like what it says. And I think these ambiguities that we put in here is is, is a search that we do to to soften what these verses seem really to to clearly say. And what I think this verse clearly says is that there is a creational hierarchy, a a hierarchy that entails authoritative leadership. It's a, a chain of command, if you will. See, the man, as the head of the woman, occupies a position here of superior relational authority. And this this corresponds, then, to the subordination that we see in God himself among the persons of the Trinity. Now, when I say this, it's very important to understand what this implies. It's important to note that this subordination in no way implies inferior essence. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each one of them are fully God fully perfect, fully equal in their honor, in their dignity, in their glory, in their being, in their essence. But nevertheless, there is a hierarchy in the Godhead, a functional relationship within the Trinity itself. And likewise, men and women are both created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women are both equal. In honor, both equal in dignity, both equal in glory in their essence, in their being. The woman is equal to the man in essence, but subordinate to the man in role and function in the creational hierarchy that God's word defines. And I think this is the basic message of this verse. But our culture doesn't like this verse. In our egalitarian culture, this message is hard to swallow. It's even hard to swallow among Christians. Because we, rightfully so, believe in equality, complete equality. And we find it extremely offensive to think that some roles, especially a more prominent role, a, a leadership role, may be limited. And limited not based on ability, but be because solely because a person is a woman. This seems backwards, does it not? It seems backwards to me. Now, some of the commentaries that I have read see this male headship. They see this as a universal principle, and they they go back to the creational hierarchy that is used, not just applying to roles within marriage, not just applying to, to roles within the church, but within the larger society. And some would limit the role of women to not much beyond childbearing. And this really, if you think about it, this has been the majority view of human society, not just the church, really until recently. There are women that I know in this room today who have had certain career and educational opportunities limited to them not because of ability, but simply because they were female. and We rightfully see this as wrong. So I don't really see this text as giving that wide application. I believe the ESV translation is correct in interpreting man and woman here as husband and wife in this verse. So I believe that the correct context of this verse is within marriage, not within society in general. And a couple of reasons I see this is is, uh, when these men and women are used together by Paul, typically he's talking about husband and wife. But even more than that, there's a definite article in the Greek before the word man in this verse. Indicates the man, a specific man. The woman is not subject to to all men, but to a specific man, not men in general. The authority is her husband, not every man. And even from a practical sense, it does not make sense. If a woman was to be subordinate to every single man, who would she listen to? You'd hear contradictory uh, directions. No, it is specifically relating to the marriage in the individual marriage. But the larger context of this passage is worship. Remember I mentioned these chapters, this entire section, is dealing with worship. So I don't think this text justifies a universal application to society in general. It applies to roles in the family. It applies to roles in the church. It doesn't apply to government. It doesn't apply to business or or society in general. This text cannot be used to prohibit a woman from being a a doctor or a judge or a CEO or even president of the United States. But what it does show, and this is going to be uh, controversial enough, it shows male headship in the family and in the church. And this is not a imp- popular view in our society. This view is, is seen as a backwards at best and, and more likely as evil. And our church, Northgate, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, we limit ordained leadership roles, elders, deacons, pastors, only to men. And again, in our time, this seems incredibly backward. It seems unenlightened. And we don't do this because we hate women. We certainly don't do this because we think women are not gifted. We know that there are many women who are much more gifted in in leadership and and, and to be better deacons and better elders. That's not the reason why we do it. We do it because Scripture commands it. We do it because there is a creational hierarchy that is shown in this verse and other verses in Scripture. We do it to obey obey Scripture. In verse 3, this male headship is the general principle that we see from This verse, and it's applicable to all churches and all times, and it's applicable to all marriages, not just Christian marriages, even non-Christian marriages. It's a creational mandate. It's a creational hierarchy. And this is not a popular view. It isn't. This is seen as misogynistic. This is seen as patriarchal. This is seen as abusive, but it's not the same. Male leadership is not abusive by definition. Now, let me make something extremely clear. Male headship is not abusive. Greater authority is given, greater judgment is required. So if that authority is abused, there is going to be judgment if there is abuse. Male headship in the church and the family is always servant leadership. The leader sacrifices them, looking to the example of Christ who sacrificed himself for the sake of those that he leads. So any abuse of authority for personal gain, it is sinful and will bring greater judgment. So this is the first principle we see here. Male headship in the family and male headship in the church. Next, we see how this general principle is to be expressed. We see this in verses 4 and 5. It says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And here what we see is a distinction being made. A distinction being made in the way men and women are to pray. How men and women are to prophesy. A distinction between the way men and women worship. And the, the men with their heads uncovered, now again, talk about their physical head, and women with their heads covered, and and furthermore, failure to follow this custom brings dishonor on the respective head. Now here's more ambiguity: Does dishonor fall on the head as described in the verse? You know, the head of, of, of Christ is the is uh, or, or me, the head of man is Christ, and the head of the woman is her husband. Is that where the dishonor comes in, or? Verse 6 seems to imply that the dishonor, at least for the wife, is, is on her. Now take a look at uh, verse 6. It says, but if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So who's dishonored? Again, we can't tell. It's, 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 it's an ambiguity. We can't definitively tell from the text. But all we do know for sure is that there is a distinction here being made between the men and the women in worship. And this distinction here is displayed somehow by the presence or absence of a head covering. And this distinction is related to the principle that we just discussed in verse 3 of male headship. And furthermore, failure to display this distinction, it leads to shame. Either shame for oneself or shame for one's head. But why covering? What, why head covering? How is this distinction of between male and female? How is this displayed by head covering? What is it about the head that is critical in Paul's instruction? Now, at this point, I think we could be tempted—tempted tempted to look at the Corinthian culture for the answer. Uh, many of you have studied Bibles. I'm sure you have notes in your Bible that give us some extra biblical information that somehow can magically solve this mystery for us, and it relieves the tension. And I like to call this the Star Trek principle. And you see this in, 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 all, in all fiction, but in Star Trek in particular, and those of you who, who are familiar with Star Trek, you know every episode, I'm talking about the, the original series, every episode it's the same. The, the heroes get into this no-win situation. It looks like it's dire, it looks like they're, they're all is lost, then at the last minute, Scotty invents something out of dilithium crystals by rerouting it and invents something completely new, and it solves all their problems. And, the, and, the, and mystery, the, the heroes win. This is what they do all the time. It's actually called bad writing, but that's but that's what they do. And it's tempting for us to kind of apply the same thing to us, to uncritically accept some note in our Bible or something that we might have heard someone say or some commentary may have said, to allow us to avoid the difficulty of dealing with what the text actually says. Now, I don't, I don't, I, I, there, there is use of understanding the, the, the background. I, I don't say that at all. I don't, I don't say we should dismiss that at all. But I suggest we refrain from doing this at this moment. And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it's difficult for us to know in 21st century America to know for certain what the meaning of certain head coverings or not coverings or hairstyles or so forth were in 1st century Corinth. It is speculative at best. It does not have the authority of Scripture. It is not God's Word. It is best speculate. And scholars will admit this, but they're looking for it to solve a problem for us. And they speculate that that a woman covering her head may have been a sign that she was married and not available, sort of like how we wear wedding wedding rings. So if you saw a woman covering her head, you knew she was married. Uh, Another thing you may have heard that that uh, prostitutes would, would shave their head or, or have, uh, would, would uh, not have head coverings, showing they were sexually available. And this, this may or may not be true. We don't really know. But at best, it's speculation. And it's best for us to look for the answers in Scripture, not in speculating what may have been in the culture. So let's look to Scripture. And wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it that Paul actually gives us the reason for this head covering instruction in the very next verse. So let's look at verse 7. It says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now you may be thinking, I would have rather stick with the Star Trek approach and go with the Bible, because this makes no sense to me. What is this saying? And verse 7 does not seem really to clear things up. If anything, this verse seems to make it more confusing. What does this verse mean, that a man should not cover his head because he's the image and glory of God? But woman is the glory of man. What again, what does this mean? Well, let's take it one piece at a time, see if we can figure this out. Well, we know for sure that man is the image of God because we see this in Genesis 1.27. It says, so God created man in his own image. We understand that. But if we read a little bit further in this verse, as I did earlier, it says, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's not just that man or the husband is in the image of God, but the wife also is in the image of God. But notice that Paul breaks the parallelism in this verse. He says the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman, doesn't say image, is the glory of man. So what we see here is that the glory is what is, 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 is uh, specifically, uh, what this is specifically about and what's being emphasized. But again, what does that mean? Well, we get more information if we go to verses 8 and 9. So let's look at 8 and 9. It says, For man was not created from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And what this is, is this is a specific reference to creation, as we heard Hal read in our our Old Testament reading this morning from Genesis chapter 2. So see, at the the end of Genesis chapter 1, the apex of... of of, of the height, the zenith of God's creation is man, male and female. Man is the last thing that God has created. And after God creates the heavens, after God creates the earth, after God creates the sun and the moon and the plants and the birds and the fish and the animals, the pinnacle, the highest of God's creation is man, man in his own image. And chapter 1 gives us the big picture of creation. But chapter 2 of Genesis, that zooms in. It gives us the specific details of the creation of man. In Genesis 2, we see that God created mankind, male and female, in his image. But this creation takes place in two stages. The first stage was the creation of the man out of the dust of the ground. And the second stage, then, was the creation of the woman out of the body of the man. The man was God's last and greatest creation. Bearing his image. And that he he's creates from the elements of the earth. So we can think of, of, of God's final masterpiece as the man. So hence, the man Adam is God's, glo- God's image and God's glory. And the woman was created by God from the man, from Adam himself. And because she came out of Adam, she came out of the man, she is in part man's glory. So I think that that's what it's talking about. The woman was created out of the man, so she's part of man's glory. So the man and the woman together as mankind, they are the glory of God. They bring honor to God. But in a lesser sense, the woman as the wife brings glory to the man, brings glory to her husband. And I think this helps us answer this question about the meaning of head from verse 5, where it says every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So, so if a woman is the glory of man, meaning the glory to her husband, the failure to show this distinction, the, to, to, to try to take her husband's role, is basically dishonoring to her husband, showing showing her discipline. And, and, and this is symbolized in this passage by praying with her head covered, so, or, or uncovered, I should say is showing is bringing dishonor. So this fails to bring honor to her husband, and hence dishonors her husband. So let me say it differently. If, if creation of the man shows the glory of God, or Christ's head, and the creation of the woman shows the glory of man, because God created her from the man, but if we blur this distinction between men and women, what we do is we rob the respective heads. We rob Christ. We rob the husband of the glory the glory that God intended to show through each. So that's kind of what what, what we're seeing here. The distinction is the important part. And if we, we blur that distinction, we bring dishonor on the appropriate head. Now we come to this very odd verse, verse 10. It says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Again, here we have another ambiguity And you may notice in your Bibles that there might be a little note on there reading says instead of because of the angels, it says because of messengers. And the reason it has that is the same Greek word. The same Greek word, angelon, could mean angels or messengers depending on the context. And the problem is we don't have enough context to know what it is. The, The deliverers of this letter are angelons, are messengers. John the Baptist is called an angelon. He's a messenger of God. So it's hard to know what he's talking about. Again, we don't have enough context to know whether it should be translated angels or messengers. But a very simple interpretation of this verse is Paul could be saying that if a messenger from another church, maybe even the person who delivered this letter, would see that the Corinthians are not following the tradition that every other church is following, that is having their women praying with their heads covered and the men praying without their heads covered, that this could cause a stumbling uh, could be a stumbling block for this messenger. And again, it goes back to the principle we saw in the last section. Remember, do nothing to, uh, that won't build others up. Don't put a stumbling block for another believer causing them to sin. That could be exactly what he means. And I, and I know that's pretty dull compared to some of the ones you've heard, right? Some of the other explanations are that dealing with the angelic host. But the problem is with all these other explanations, they're all speculative. They're speculative at best. And, and we run into this problem often when we try to deal with angels. I know we talked about this a little bit in, in our Bible study when we were looking at angels. The problem is we, we love angels. We want to know a lot about angels. But the Bible is not really a book about angels. The angels are at best peripheral in the Bible. The Bible is about God and about us. And the problem is we love angels. and We want to know more. So we, we, it naturally, this fascination naturally leads to speculation. And some people speculate that if a woman was not wearing a head covering, this could actually be seductive to angels, tempting them to want to have sex with the women. And they try to tie this to an an equally obscure and abused verse that we find in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, that says, The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And people interpret the sons of God here to mean angels. And They saw angels were intermarrying with wi- human women and creating this hybrid half a- half angel and half man creature that they were calling giants and and that has I, I don't have time to go into that but that has a whole bunch of problems but again it's speculation the interpretation and and really the interpretation that um, that this is tempting sexually tempting of the uh, of the angels this contradicts jesus' own words where Jesus says in the res- resurrection we will be like Angels, he says this in Matthew 22:30. We will not marry, and what this implies is that angels are not sexual beings. Angels do not reproduce like humans. Angels were all created at one time as individuals directly by, from God. So angels really cannot be seduced by by women to have sex with humans because they're not sexual beings to begin with. Now, one possible interpretation, if you really want to, to, to have this not mean messengers, but angels, and again, this is speculative, for this verse is the failure for, for men and women to show distinction in worship. This could be confusing to angels. And why is it confusing? Because angels see one of the key differences between angels and people is people are there's two. There's two sexes of people. There isn't two sexes of angels. So it could be confusing for the angels. So these are two, understandings. My my preference in thinking this is it's talking about human messengers. And it avoids, it, avoids this, it, it allows us to do as little speculation as possible. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. These are, these are important because what they do is they balance our understanding of male headship and, and this original creation. And it, and it gives us, a, it gives us a, a, a proper balance, I should say. Because it's real easy for men to get cocky and forget that this position of leadership is a functional leadership. It, it, is a, it is a role. It's not essence. So here Paul stresses not the independence, but the interdependence of men and women. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is woman is not independent from man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. So Paul stresses that in the Lord, Women and men are interdependent. Just as God said in in Genesis 2, it's not good for for man to be alone. Well, it's not good for women to be alone. Men and women were created to complement each other. The image of God is really incomplete in any single gender. When they come together, that is when we have a complete. Again, Genesis one twenty-seven. in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the image of God is not complete in male alone. It's not complete in female alone. It's complete in both. And verse 12 ends, and all things are from God. And this is just to make sure we don't get caught up too much, get distracted by this male-female relationship and take our eyes off of Christ. Christ is the true source. We need to be looking at Christ. Verse 13 then brings us to a decision. It brings them to, Paul directly asks them, he says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And here it's, it's, it's making it's no longer theoretical. In light of Paul's previous argument, he is asking the Corinthians, he is asking us to make a decision. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And the expected answer from both the Corinthians and from us is no. No, it is not proper. So we know that head coverings are proper for women, but we still don't know exactly what this looks like. What is it talking about? Is it talking about a hat? Is it talking about a veil? Is it talking about these people like a little doily thing? Is that what it's talking about? Like a, maybe like a yarmulke? Well, the next two verses I think give us a clue to what's required. Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. And here's the key part. For her hair is given to her for a covering. These verses give us the answer to what we're looking for. What is specific head covering? The answer is hair. It says, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Nowhere else does it say, it doesn't say a hat is given for a covering, it doesn't say a doily or a veil, it says her hair. So verse 15 gives us the answer. Her hair is given to her for a covering. The woman's hair, not a veil, not a hat, is given for a covering. And what we do is we read these two verses in light of the general principle that is represented by head, by head covering. And that is that men and women are to present themselves as different, as distinct. And what better way to show that than hair, right, specifically? And I don't, I don't think it's talking about the length of a hair, although that's part of it. It's, it's the style. You could tell. I mean, you look around in this room today. There are women with short hair, long hair. But you could tell they're women. And you look at men who have different hair. You can tell they're men. This is a perfect way of telling the difference between the genders. We're not confused. And and, and in verse 14, it says, if a man wore his hair long, it's a disgrace. And I'm sure men in in the first century would wear longer hair than than men in the 1950s, or even men now do it. But it's a disgrace. It's not the length of hair. The disgrace is wearing a hair that would confuse them with women, to make them purposely want to look like women in their hair. And similarly, there are women with relatively short hair, but nobody, again, mistakes them for being men. See, the disgrace is the blurring, the sexual distinction between men and women. And Paul ends this passage in verse 16 with a clear statement that this is really a non-negotiable for God's church. He says, If anyone is inclined to be contentions, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And he's saying, if you want to argue, you're out of luck. He says this gender distinction, this is part of God's creation. And it's part of worship in God's church. Men are to worship. Men are to live clearly as men. And women are to worship. And, men are, and women are to live clearly and distinguishably as women. And we spent a lot of time... Examining this verse by verse because again, this is a complex, this is an ambiguous passage. But I think if we go through it, we can have a, a clear understanding of what it's saying. And now we are ready to apply it to ourselves. Now we are ready to say, What does that mean to us today? And really, there's just one application from the sermon. The one application that I have from this sermon is simple men and women are different. Men and women are different. You had to come here to hear that from me. And there should be no attempt to blur this distinction. And again, this seems so obvious. This is something we we each learn, we discover at a very early age. But sadly, in our current culture, this fact is, I think, purposely and and sinfully suppressed. I mean, we just look in the news today. We have a very intelligent woman who's been nominated to the most exclusive club in the world to, to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. And she says she cannot define what a woman is. She says, I'm not a biologist. She knows what a woman is. The reason is she's held captive to a worldview that is in rebellion against God, that says that we can decide, not God, what a man or a woman is. And despite her incredible intellect, she's unable to see the truth, a truth that even a small child can see. Men and women are different. And this is Romans 1 in action, claiming to be wise, they become fools. And sadly, this is our culture, in rebellion against God. So our application is that men and women are different. They are different physically. They are different in the roles that God has assigned each of them, both in the church and in the family. And failure to acknowledge this fact is rebellion against God. Rebellion against God that he reveals himself both in nature and in his holy word. And these differences are not to be eliminated. They are not to be blurred. They are to be displayed. They are to be celebrated. Men and women are different. They complement each other. Each sex displays a unique aspect of the image of God that the other cannot display. And together, together, they complete one another. And this completion brings glory to women. This completion brings glory to men. But most of all, this completion brings glory to God. And specifically about head coverings. I do not think this passage compare, uh, commands women to wear a veil or, or a hat when praying. I believe the general principle is that men and women are to be different, and this differences should be made clear most easily by the way they wear their hair and their hairstyles. So that's what I think that this is specifically talking about. But that said, if a woman understands this admittedly ambiguous passage to teach that she should wear actual fabric head covering, that's fine. That is fine. Then she should do this. Because if she feels that that is what she should do, she does not want to sin against her, her conscience. So, but I don't really think that that's necessary. But that, that's fine. That we, we, have, we give each other grace in those situations. But finally, despite the differences between men and women in the church, despite differences in the family, one thing is identical. Both men and women are sinners. Both men and women need a Savior. And each one of us is saved the same way. Each one of us is without hope saved in God's sovereign mercy. And that sovereign mercy is applied to men and women in the same way. It is by the gospel. The gospel alone, through faith alone, in, in grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is the gospel. And there is only one gospel. There's not a men's gospel and a woman's gospel. There is one gospel, one way of salvation. And it's through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Christ saves men, Christ saves women. Christ saves regardless of sex, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, or tongue, or tribe, or language, or anything else, or even sin pattern. And the offer of salvation is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's open to all. All who call upon the name of the Lord, men, women, or or any other distinction we want to make, all call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is an admitted, difficult passage. But Father, we thank you that the gospel is very clear. The gospel is clear. We are all sinners. We are all separated from you, men and women alike. And we are thankful that there is one Savior for all, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the sins of men, the sins of women, the sins of all of his elect, and he paid the price. He was punished on the cross for those sins. And his perfect righteousness was given to his elect by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is the only hope that we have for salvation. And I pray, Father, for all who hear my voice, I pray that that will be the truth for each one of them. We pray, Father, that you are glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.